Thank you very much, Michaela and Emma, doing our readings for today. Now, we are going to be diving in to Hebrews chapter 8, has just been read out. We've had a little break uh, looking at some sections in repentance, and now we're back into Hebrews, and we're back into Hebrews chapter 8. But before we jump in there, I'm going to pray for us, but I'm also going to pray for the Vincent family. Uh, Some of you may know that Neil Vincent, who worshipped with us a number of years ago, a very dear friend to many people here, he passed away on Tuesday morning. And he was surrounded by friends and family, and they were worshipping the Lord as he breathed his last breath and entered into glory. And now he's rejoicing with his father and seeing him face to face. And so we'll celebrate uh, him and pray for his family now. Uh, And there will be a uh, online uh, a service uh, in the US that will also be those who want will be able to follow along online and we'll put that in the e-news that goes out this week and it'll be on Monday morning uh, live if you're wanting to, to watch that uh, service so let's pray as we come before God's word and also pray for the Vincent family Lord as we we come to your word we pray that you would work within us Lord that you would quicken your spirit lord open our eyes lord uh, soften our hardened hearts lord to come to you to be shaped by you to learn of you to behold your glory lord we pray you give us a taste even of what neil now experiences where he sees you face to face thank you for his life thank you for his legacy the godly life that he lived, so many of us that he encouraged and pointed towards you. Lord, we pray for Jen, for Ivy and Bailey and Clay and Zach now. We pray that you comfort them as they uh, rejoice in Neil's life and mourn his grieving. Thank you that they trust you and are held fast in your hands. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I wanted to ask, how many of us here are citizens somewhere in the world? Now, I think all of us have to put up our hand, okay? Somewhere in the world, we are a citizen. And our citizenship, it comes with promises and responsibilities. In New Zealand, if you're a citizen, you're promised medical care and protection from the police, uh, education, but we also have responsibilities that we have to abide by certain rules. We don't steal, kill, lie, or we face consequences for that. You see, we all have these and live in a world where we have these conscious and sometimes subconscious agreements that we live within. One of them is like being our citizenship. And another term we could think of these is really covenants, In our citizenship, we kind of have a covenant with the state. And we have these covenants not just with government, we have them also in our families. You see, we're promised, as kids, in our house, was you get dessert if you finish your dinner, but no dessert if you don't finish your dinner. That was the agreement in the home. We also have maybe ones as we get older in our families. You you get a loving embrace if you come home for Christmas but you get the cold shoulder if you don't, okay? 
Also, we're promised love and protection by loved ones when we make pledges and marriage covenants to them. But we also have these in our cultural backgrounds. In the West, we often grow up with this kind of unspoken agreement with God or the universe that we think that we're promised a good and easy life if we be a good moral person. Maybe if you're more from an Eastern area of the world, promised acceptance and honor if we bring honor the family through our status or our achievement, our success and care of elders, but we face shame if we don't do that. Or if you're more of a post-2000s person, you're promised to find your true self if I express myself, but emptiness if I don't do that. You see, our lives are full of conscious and unconscious agreements or covenants Really, and they promise one thing. They make promises of a good life, of a life of love and security, comfort, honor, personal fulfillment. But what are these promises based on? What are they founded on? Is it our ability or the other person's ability in this agreement? You see, we have to ask, what are these, what are these promises founded on? This week in the, the Herald and the Dating Diaries, which is always interesting reading, okay, there was a writer here who was having a quarter-life crisis, which was a new thing for me to learn about. Okay, they were promised and they assumed that by 25, this is their quote, I'll have a boss career, lots of money, and I'll either have a super cool one-bedroom apartment where I live like Kerry Bradshaw or I live Kerry Bradshaw, or I'll live with my own man. And yet it didn't fulfill. It hadn't worked out. And so this person had ended up drinking and waking up with anxiety, which was another thing I had to learn about. <laughs> okay, this, but this is the world we live in. We have these assumed promises, but they don't work out. What are they based on? Okay, and the people in our passage here in Hebrews 8 the recipients of this letter to the Hebrews, they'd also built their life on promises, on God's covenant of his presence and blessing if they kept his laws and instructions. But they couldn't consistently have it, God's presence, because there was a fault in the covenant. But God promised a better covenant, a better agreement, a better set of promises based on his better promises. And this is what we want to see today. We want to see today of God's new covenant, which means the recipients of this letter to the Hebrews and to us can truly be God's people and know his presence and know him again. So today I've called our sermon, The Power of Better Promises. We're going to look at the better promises of God. So the recipients of this letter were Greek-speaking Hebrews. They had grown up worshipping God in the temple in Jerusalem. And we see in Luke chapter 2 that Jesus did this. He also went as a Jewish boy to worship in the temple and offer sacrifices and gifts. And you see this temple traces all the way back to Exodus 25 that we read out. At Mount Sinai, God covenanted with the new people of Israel that he would be their God and they would be his people. 
And the condition was that was if they obeyed all that he commanded. And it wasn't just outward. In Deuteronomy 6, 6, they're told, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. They were to be cherished. They were to obey God's words and cherish them in their heart and obey them in their heart. And when God gave this covenant, God also instructed Moses in the making of a tent of meeting. An elaborate tent that was standing in the middle of this newly formed million person people of Israel who had just come out of Egypt. And it was probably about the size of this stage, the special tent that was in the dead middle of this people. And in it was God's presence. It was where they would meet with God. His presence was there so that they could know God and receive his blessing. He didn't dwell with any other people, just the Israelites. But because the people were not perfectly, they couldn't, they couldn't perfectly obey God. They couldn't obey all that he had instructed and commanded them. He set up a, a series where you could bring sacrifices and gifts through a mediator. You see, he appointed a high priest. And this was the one that was, would represent them before God. And this high priest would bring the blood of an animal to pay for their sins, to offer the sacrifice. And then they would bring grain or gifts as offerings of thanks and petition that they had been restored to fellowship with God. And this covenant of God having a dwelling place in the center of his people and sacrifices and gifts continued right until Jesus came. This was the practice of the Jewish people when this letter to the Hebrews was written. The tent, the elaborate tent, had been replaced by a more elaborate temple, Solomon's temple, and then Herod's temple. And the work of the high priest continued. They represented the people before God. And this is the covenant that the Hebrew Christians here, they're tempted to return to. They're tempted to return back to those old ways of bringing sacrifices and gifts via a mediator, a high priest, an earthly high priest, to receive the presence and blessing of God. They're tempted to continue living under this old covenant. And so the pastor here in this letter to Hebrews, he writes to encourage them that Jesus is superior to all that has come before him. We've seen so far in Hebrews that Jesus is greater than angels, that Jesus is greater than Moses, that Jesus is a greater high priest. And now he wants to see us, us to see in chapter 8 that as the high priest, he mediates a new and better covenant than the old. So we're going to look at this chapter 8 in two parts. We've got part 1, which is verses 1 and 2. We see the superior minister is Jesus, as seated in the superior sanctuary. And in part two, we're going to look at verses 3 to 13. The superior ministry of Jesus is of the superior covenant built upon superior promises. So this is part one. Superior minister seated in the superior sanctuary or tent. Now verses 1 and 2, here of chapter 8, the pastor brings together everything that he has been telling them since chapter 4. And he wants to make it blindingly clear. He says, now the point, and what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent, 
that the Lord set up, not man. He describes Jesus as the high priest who is the minister in the heavenly places. He says here that he sits at the right hand of God. That's your right. Yep. The right hand of God. Okay, in the Old Testament times, the seat that the right hand here was the, the place of authority, of prestige, of honor. And this seat here at the right hand is at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. In the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Now, what does he mean here by true tent? Well, if we go down to verse 5, it helps us understand this. It says, They, the earthly high priests, serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. He describes the high priests on earth that they, they serve in a temple as a, that was a copy or a shadow of the heavenly realities. In Exodus 25, when Moses was given it, the instructions, he was, he was told that this is a, a pattern of the temple. He was given a blueprint of an already greater existing building, the true temple made by God that already existed. When uh, Chris and I lived in Brisbane, we'd sometimes go down to a popular street and there was a cafe there, a French cafe, and above the entrance was this three-meter-high replica of the Eiffel Tower. Now, it was impressive and it served really good French coffee, but it was a shadow compared to sitting in Paris drinking coffee and looking at the real Eiffel Tower. I'm sure someone might have done that. And that would just pale in comparison with the real reality of seeing the Eiffel Tower. But this cafe gave you a taste and it beckoned you to the greater reality. Now here we see Jesus in the true tent now. He serves as a minister in the very throne room of God. Although the earthly priest served in the temple according to the law and it was a true temple and God's presence was there. Jesus serves in the greater, the true temple. This is what makes him a greater high priest than the earthly ones. But what, as a minister here in this greater tent, what is he doing? What is his ministry? Well, this is what our second part answers in verse 3 to 13. The superior ministry of superior covenant, of a superior covenant built on superior promises. Verse 3 tells us, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, Thus it is necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. Earthly priests, as mediators, they would bring sacrifices and gifts on behalf of the people. They would offer sacrifices, animal sacrifices, their blood, to pay for the sins of the people. And once they were right, once God had received this blood offering, they would then bring gifts of praise and thanks and petition before the Lord. Now, we kind of operate in a little bit this way today. Now, say you really stuff up, maybe as a husband, you really stuff up, or as a friend, one of the things we sometimes do is you bring an offering, flowers, chocolates, and you bring this to the person as kind of a recognition of your failure, of your stuffing up, and a desire for restoration, but it's only when that is accepted by the person is there a restoration of relationship. So we see that pattern still today. 
But here we see Jesus as the, um, I'll carry on. Here we see Jesus as a greater high priest who brings gifts and offerings. So, well, what is Jesus here? The question is, what does he bring as this true greater high priest in the heavenly realms? What does he bring in the throne of God? Well, if we go back to chapter 7, verse 27 answers us. tells us, He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for the people. For he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus offered himself as the final perfect blood sacrifice on the cross once and for all. This is why he sits on the throne. He declared on the cross, it is finished. His work is complete. His blood has made everyone clean who trusts in him. His sin, his blood has atoned for all sin to make us right before God again. Never again does an animal need to be sacrificed. Our relationship with God has been restored where again God's people as he's promised. And so much so that Ephesians 2, 6 even tells us that we now sit presently with God in the heavenly realm before God. That's how effectual Christ's finished sacrifice was, that we are welcomed back in the very presence of God. And because his blood has cleansed our sin, now gifts of thanks and petition can be brought before God. And this is what we see in chapter 7, verse 25. This is what Jesus is doing. It tells us, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is interceding for us. He is bringing thanks, desires, petitions before the Father on our behalf, seeking blessing for us, courage, faith, strength in our times of need. And because he is seated in God's presence, it doesn't mean, though, that he's just sitting back casually. He's active. If you turn with me, turn to Acts 7, verse 54. Here we have the Pharisees wanting to stone Stephen for calling them to repent and trust in Jesus. I'll read out from verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they, they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. What was Jesus doing here in Stephen's time of need? Jesus was standing. He was active at the right hand of God, interceding for Stephen's needs, that God would give him, hold him fast, give him strength, give him courage to stand firm and proclaim Christ's name. And this, this is the ministry of Jesus, being the perfect sacrifice and the perfect interceder on our behalf. This is what he does, and this is what is called the new covenant. He is the superior high priest. He mediates this promised new covenant where our sins are perfectly forgiven and we are 
We are interceded for. This is what verse 6 tells us. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. This is the new covenant. And it's better than the old, which had a fatal fault. That's what tells us in verse 7. The high priests were not perfect. But with Jesus, it's the superior high priest. He ushers in the promised new covenant. And this is the new covenant was promised long ago. Verses 8 through 12 are a direct quote of Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. And Jeremiah wrote those words about 600 B.C. He wrote them as Israel was being taken from the promised land out to Babylon for disobeying the covenant that God had made with them because they failed to take his words to heart. And in that moment, as they would have been questioning, what about the blessings of God? What about the promises of God? God promises a new covenant that is coming, that is on the horizon. And this new covenant in Hebrews 8 is described from verse 10 going through. This is one where his laws will be written on their hearts. And they will be my people again. From verse 11, he says that this will be for everyone, not just a select few. All shall know from the least to the greatest. And this new covenant is based on God showing mercy towards our sins, remembering them no more. And Jesus fulfilled this promised better new covenant by sending the better high priest, Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus has ushered in through his blood. God now has been merciful towards our sins. Now he remembers them no more. And in his new covenant, which is much more superior to the old, we have the promises that were promised to Abraham right back there in Genesis 12 and 17, that God is our God, that we are his people. These blessings have been lavished on us. Now to the Hebrews, they're tempted to turn back to the old ways. This is a real encouragement. Why turn back to what is inferior? Why turn back to something that is obsolete, as verse 13 describes? Something that's vanishing away. Why turn to something that is soon to be dust? He's encouraging them, hold fast to what Christ has done as the true high priest, as the new mediator. Hold fast to him, to this new covenant in Christ's blood. Trust in the new mediator. Now we might look at these Hebrew Christians and and wonder why would they turn back to that old covenant? Why would they turn back to familiar ways of operating? Why would they turn back to ways that are probably more accepted by their society, ways that they knew how to control and operate. You see, but we are just like them. We're very tempted, just like them, to turn back to old agreements, old covenants, old ways of operating. You see, we're just like the kids in that famous Stanford marshmallow test, where they're given one marshmallow, And then they're promised if they wait 10 minutes, they'll get two marshmallows. And yet the majority of kids, they want the first marshmallow. It's there, it's a tangible, it's present. They know it. We're just like this. You see, we grow up in certain ways. We we grow up with our own family or cultural society covenants. 
ways and, and things that promise us the good life. They promise us wealth and ease and inclusion, acceptance, personal fulfillment. You see, and we even have these kind of high priests or mediators, and we bring our, our sacrifices and gifts even in our own world. We, we give our time and our energy to our employer to gain the wealth, of the security of wealth. We might do this with our parents. We, we will oh, obey and do what my parents expect to receive their acceptance. We might place our children in the right schools because then we'll be accepted and welcomed into society. We might follow the gurus of our generation, we, Taylor Swift and Bieber and Billy English, to find ourselves because they lead us into self-fulfillment. See, even we do this. And even when we commit to following Christ, these old ways, they have an allure. They tempt us. They promise temporal acceptance. They promise seeming ease, control, and love. And I know I'm, I'm tempted by the old ways. I'm tempted, you know, well, why don't you do a job that's normal like everyone else and, and be accepted by society and fit in? That allure is there in my own heart. It tempts us all. But where do these old ways, where do these old agreements of the world, where do they lead us? And what are their promises built on? You see, they're constructs that we've built Stealing good things that God made for us and twisting them for our own creation. Shadows of God's goodness. But they can't last because our high priests of the world are as inferior as they were in the Old Testament. Our employers can't guarantee our job or wealth. Our parents change their opinion or they get old. Okay, we can't control our children. Taylor Swift can't help you find yourself. We need a better covenant. We need a better promise. We need it to be built on better promises, not the promises of this world. We need a covenant that is not of this world, but with God who made us, who knows us, and who is truly in control, and who has secured by his own promises to redeem us, to remember our sins no more, our failures, our brokenness no more, by Christ's finished work, he has secured this. And he has drawn us back to himself. We need God, who will welcome us back to be his own people again. To be his, to enjoy his presence and his fellowship. And this is what we have in Christ. This is what we have in Christ as the superior high priest of the promised superior covenant. And this is real life. By his blood, we now all, through the Holy Spirit, have his law written on our hearts and minds. We can know God personally. We can be welcomed into the Holy of Holies, to the very presence of God, where Jesus sits because we're in union with him. We can know our God and be his people, know his love, his acceptance, his security. We can know that he is interceding for us. He is bringing our needs, our pain, and our struggles, our challenges, as well as our thanks, before the very throne of God. And this gives us confidence to hold fast to God because he's hold, holding fast to us. He's securing us. He has secured these new covenant blessings. 
by the better promises of his son's blood. And because of this, we can have confidence. And we can have confidence now, and we can have confidence that one day we will get to experience and see the blessing that John writes about in Revelation 21, where he said, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Jesus, as the superior high priest, has secured the new covenant that God is our God, and we are God's people now and forever. That gives us confidence to continue, to not turn back to the old ways, to hold fast, to rejoice, and give thanks to God that we are his people and he is our God. So let's pray and thanks, thank God now. Lord, we are, we are all tempted to turn back to old ways, old agreements we had with the world. Lord, old covenants that we based our life upon that, that promised us good things. Lord, remind us again of your goodness, that we would look to you and turn to you and hold fast to you, the one who has secured by your son's blood the blessings of the new covenant. That we are yours and you are ours. That we can come into your very presence. That you are holding us fast. That your son is interceding for us before you in our times of need. When we're most tempted, when we struggle, when we're discouraged, we're downhearted. That you are holding us fast. Your son is interceding for us. Lord, we long for that day. We look forward to that day. Lord, where we will see you face to face. Lord, where for eternity we will dwell with you in your presence. Where you yourself will be our God in the full reality that we look forward to. Lord, strengthen us. Hold us fast. Encourage us to look forward to that day. Lord, as we wait. In Christ's name, amen.